I'll invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to finish up there, and then we're going to continue through chapter 9. Just to give you some background from last time I was up here, in the end, towards the end of chapter 8, around verse 15, God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds, cattle, creeping things, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah did that. Noah went out of the ark and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 20 of chapter 8. Let's read through the the last few verses of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Back in verse 20, Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And that's the first thing that Noah did when he got off of the ark. And that tells us something. He built this altar and he sacrificed to God. He was thankful, no doubt, for God carrying him through such a trying judgment. This is also the first mention of the word altar. Now, of course, an altar, or at least a specified place of sacrifice, has been insinuated before, um, specifically when it said that Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. That seems to speak of a specified place that they brought their offerings. But here, an altar is mentioned for the first time, and specifically the word altar And no doubt, Noah's sacrifice to God is one of thanksgiving. After all, God had just delivered him from the most severe judgment that had come on the world. He had a lot to be thankful for. And again, there seems to be some kind of conscience of clean and unclean animals, even here, all those years before the law was given to Moses. Noah takes one of every clean animal and one of every clean bird to offer to the Lord. And in verse 21, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It's like, although man's heart is evil from his youth, I'm not going to curse the ground for man's sake. That's the grace of God, not giving man what he deserves. What grace? 
nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, there's another instance of the Bible teaching a universal flood. The Bible knows nothing of a local flood of Noah. This was universal. God says that he had wiped out every living thing and that he would not do that again. There is a condition here, as I have done. You know, he, he won't destroy every living thing in the same way that he did before. But there will come a time of judgment yet in our future that the heavens and the earth will pass away with fervent heat, Peter tells us. But there will never be another flood to wipe out all flesh on the earth. And it seems that God is saying this to himself here. It says he said it in his heart. Later in verse 11, in chapter 9, God will let Noah in on the covenant that he is to make with Noah and all flesh that's on the earth. And there he tells him about the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. And we'll get there. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Now, these are obviously some very important changes that are noted. And the simple fact that these things are mentioned seems to imply that it was different before the flood. There's a different way that things worked. These dichotomies seem to be pointing to the new seasonal processes that the earth begins to experience after the flood. And this is the first time that a lot of these words are mentioned in the Bible. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, winter, and summer. The first time all of those words are mentioned in the Bible. Now, of course, we've seen the words day and night before in chapter 1 when God created them. Some believe that this is when the earth was knocked off of its perfect axis, resulting in the 23 and a half degree tilt of the earth's axis that we see today. And the Bible doesn't specify if this is the case, so we don't know for sure, but it's it's possible. And modern science does confirm that this axial tilt contributes to the seasons that we experience. Some parts of the earth are closer or further from the sun, which results in warmer or cooler climates in different times of the year. There's also a really interesting couple of verses in Jeremiah where God confirms his covenant with David using the surety of the coming of day and night. If you want to jot down Jeremiah 33, 19 through 21. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. So there he is staking his promise to David on the fact that day and night would not cease to come. 
And here in verse 22 of Genesis 8, he promises that day and night will remain. Considering the topic of climate change and global warming, you know, verse 22 speaks to this. And if nothing else, it's reassuring that God is emphatic about the fact that normal seasonal processes will continue to be the norm. We certainly don't need to feed into the narrative of climate change. Even if something disastrous is, in fact, on the horizon for the earth, I'm confident that Christ is coming back before then. You know, these predictions are so far out there that we know Christ will return. Now, there will be some wild, natural, and supernatural phenomena during the tribulation. That would be before the second coming of Christ. But as far as a global climate disaster that wipes out humanity, you know, we really just don't need to worry about that. Because God says here, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. There will be a continuation of the natural processes. You know, and it's funny because the uniformitarian thought process is based on that principle, that things continue as they have always been. But take note of when that principle of uniformity is set into place by God. It's here after the flood, after creation, after the fall of man, a lot of things change there. This great cataclysm of the flood changes the landscape of the earth, changes the climate, the atmosphere, everything changes. Then God says, things are going to continue as they are now. And that's what science is built upon. It's that we can replicate things. We can predict what's going to happen based on what we've observed in the past. And so we can figure out water's boiling point, right? And we can predict based on the elevation what that boiling point is going to be because we know that it's going to continue staying the same. That's how we build on science. But the uniformitarians are just a little bit off in their assumptions because they think it's continued like this forever when God clearly sets it in place here. Now, when I say don't worry about climate change, I'm not saying to go trash the planet, okay? We do want to take care of what God has entrusted us with, and we are to be good stewards of his creation. Genesis chapter 9. The first 17 verses of chapter 9 contain God's response to the sacrifice that Noah made after leaving the ark. And they're the personal words from God. This is what he's actually saying to Noah. And in this passage, God puts his approval on human government, on eating meat, and he makes a wonderful covenant with Noah, which is still in effect today. Verse 1 of chapter 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth 
and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on the very beast on every beast of the earth on every bird of the air on all that move on the earth and all of the fish of the sea they are given into your hand every moving thing that lives shall be food for you i have given you all things even as the green herbs but you shall not eat the flesh with its life that is its blood surely for your life blood i will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast i will require it and from the hand of man from the hand of every man's brother i will require the life of man so verse 1 god blessed noah and his sons and he said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth now of course this reminds us of the command that god had given to the first man in the beginning but there are elements to that command given to adam that are left out in this command to noah in genesis 1 verse 26 it says then god blessed them and said to them that is adam and eve be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth so there seems to be four parts if you will to this command to adam one be fruitful and multiply two fill the earth three subdue it and four have dominion over it and specifically dominion over the animals of it now to noah god leaves out two of those parts in his command he only tells noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply that's our first part and fill the earth the second part there's no mention of subduing the earth or having dominion over it and this is interesting this could be hinting at the authority and the dominion that satan now possessed over the earth in the fall adam forfeited at least some of his dominion over the earth and the creatures in it and 1st john 5:19 says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one jesus even calls satan the ruler of this world in john 12:31 and paul calls him the god of this age in 2nd corinthians 4:4 there's no question that adam gave something up there so now instead of telling noah to exercise dominion over the animals god tells him this in verse 2 and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth on every bird of the air on all that moves on the earth and on all the fish of the sea they are given into your hand every moving thing that lives shall be food for you i have given you all things even as the green herbs well that's one way to to make animals afraid of you right tell you you can eat them so yeah they were afraid of men from this point and there's an interesting view on verse 2 that i want at least to mention some see this act of god as protection for men making these animals afraid of them because the animals would have repopulated 
they would have expanded their populations much quicker than the men would have. And some of these wild animals may have, you know, eaten them or <laughs> something. You know, we, we take it that there probably were dinosaurs on the ark, a lot of carnivorous animals. And so their expanding populations might have threatened the survival of God's people. And so God acts in this way. He makes the animals afraid of the humans. And that kind of explains why such high-level predators, even today, are scared of people. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but like I used to do a lot of predator hunting, at least a fair amount. I won't say a lot, but it's so fun because these coyotes and these bobcats are coming into the call to kill something. They hear what they think is an animal in distress, and they're coming for a meal. They're predators. But if you make a little, a slight little movement, and they see you, they bolt. They don't want any part of it. You know, I'm not like a, a real terrifying guy, so... So it doesn't make sense to me why these predators are scared of me. But this helps us make sense of it. God puts this fear of man into the heart of the beasts. And later he'll put the fear of God into the heart of man. And it's worth mentioning that the term cattle, which is used elsewhere and is usually in reference to domesticated animals, is not mentioned in this list of animals that would fear man. The cattle is not mentioned here. It seems to only be the wild animals, the ones that may threaten the humans. It seems that the domesticated animals continue to live peaceably with men. And here God hands over the animal kingdom to man to use as food, something that previously was not allowed by God. That's not to say it didn't happen, but it was not looked upon favorably by God. Adam was not given this green light to eat animals, but now God tells Noah that all animals are given to him for food. And notice that God doesn't specify here categories of animals for him to eat. There's no clean and unclean yet here. There's no dietary laws imposed here. That would come later. Of course, there was that consciousness of what may be considered later clean and unclean. But now, everything is lawful. For them. Now, not that you would want to eat everything, but it was lawful. You know, all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. Maybe there are some things that are not helpful to eat. And there are certainly undertones of this passage in Acts 10, when Peter receives his vision of the sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals on it. God says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. And that passage carries a lot of significance 
especially to us as Gentiles, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there this morning. Verse 3 is a clarification of God's direction for man. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. The green herbs were given to Adam for food, and now he clarifies that all animals are like the green herbs in that you can eat them. And again, according to God, you and I are on solid ground if we want to eat meat. And I'm glad for that. Right? I enjoy a good steak. And I find it quite easy to ask for the Lord's blessing over a nice steak. Right? A little more difficult to ask for the Lord's blessing over a pile of lettuce. <laughs> that's just my personal bend. You, you can be different. That's okay. You know, plenty of people choose to be vegetarian. And, you know, that's, that's fine if that's what you decide you need to do. But you can approach meat with a thankful heart. And everything needs to be sanctified anyways. Say grace before your meals. Paul writes to Timothy, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's in 1 Timothy 4, 4, and 5. Now, every one of us chooses not to eat certain foods. I choose not to eat pineapples because I don't like them. You may love pineapples and you can eat them. Um, But it's not that it makes me more spiritual to not eat pineapples, right? Or to eat certain things. It's, it's, It's not an issue of spirituality but preference. You may be a vegetarian for a number of different reasons, you know, because you either love animals, you don't want to kill the animals, or you hate vegetables, and you do want to kill all the vegetables. There's a lot of reasons to do it. Um, you know, we're having some fun there, but we'll, we'll move on. I don't want to press my luck. Verse 4. But you should not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that's true spiritually, it's true physically. The blood is what carries the oxygen and the nutrients that we take in to the flesh, to all of our extremities. It it is amazing to me how accurate the Bible is scientifically. It is. And this simple prohibition of blood, eating or drinking blood, is also one of the few rules that the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 decided to put on the Gentile believers. There is a big, big scene in Acts 15 where certain believing Jews were teaching that Gentiles had to be circumcised and to keep the law in order to be saved. So Paul and Barnabas 
with some others, go up to Jerusalem to consult the apostles and the elders there about this confusion. The question being addressed was this, in verse 5, is it necessary to circumcise Gentile believers and to command them to keep the law of Moses? That's the question that they came to meet up about. So the apostles and the elders wrote a letter to clarify their position on this issue. And it's only a few verses, so I'm going to read it to you real quick. This is from Acts 15, verses 23 through 29. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Here you are that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, that's what we're talking about now, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Those are the rules that they impose on the Gentile believers. Abstain from things offered to idols, abstain from blood, abstain from things strangled, and abstain from sexual immorality. The prohibition against eating or drinking blood from Genesis 9 this morning was still in effect in Acts when they imposed these laws on the Gentiles, right? And there was a good reason that God is telling them, don't drink the blood, don't eat the blood. And it's related to things strangled. If something's strangled, the blood remains in the animal. And so those two are actually related. And every one of these rules listed has something to do with the pagan practices that pervaded the first century culture. The drinking of blood is something forbidden by God. And it's no coincidence that that practice is so prevalent in the world of the occult. For one, it's in direct opposition to the commands of God, but it's also a perversion of the blood of Christ that was spilled for our behalf. And rituals using blood of both animals and humans are still practiced today in the occult, and they stem all the way back from this time in Genesis when things were going awry. People were turning away from the one true God. It's still around. Surely your lifeblood I will demand, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. God values human life. This is 
Exhibit A, God values human life. Make no mistake about it. Even in Exodus 21, we see that if an ox gores a man, the ox would be put to death. It would have to be stoned. There was that reckoning for the life of man, even on an animal. From the hand of every beast, God demands a reckoning. This even continues to paint this picture of substitutionary atonement. And it's built on by the Levitical sacrifices that would be instituted later, the death of the animal in place of the man, and it would finally be fulfilled in the Lamb of God, the death of Christ on behalf of mankind. This picture is being painted for us. Verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. God places his approval here on capital punishment. Life for a life. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. There's nothing political about this. This is just what the word of God says. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now let's read together verses 8 through 17. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Before we continue, I want to point out that the definite article is present before flood. The flood. And remember, flood is a specific word for the Noahic flood, the universal flood. It's the Mabul. The waters of the flood. Not a flood, the specific flood. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth as the flood did. You see that another instance, we're talking about a universal flood. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is in the earth. And God said to Noah, 
This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's a little repetitive in those few verses, isn't it? I think it's because he wants to get this point across. This is a covenant between God and all flesh on the earth. And the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. So here God is establishing this covenant with Noah and with all of those who would come after Noah. In fact, verse 16 says that the covenant is between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. That's pretty broad. And this is a monogistic, a unilateral or unconditional covenant. It's between God and man, but there are no conditions that man has to meet. All of the conditions of this covenant are placed on God. Unilateral, unconditional. God takes it upon himself to uphold this covenant. What is this covenant? Verse 11 tells us, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God promises that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And God declares the sign of this covenant to be a rainbow. We look up at a rainbow in the sky and we think, wow, it's beautiful. And it certainly is. But I'm sure Noah had a much deeper appreciation for what the, the rainbow represented. After coming through what was surely a traumatic event in his life, he was assured that it would never happen again. And whenever he saw a rainbow, he was reminded of that surety. And even more, Noah was assured, and we can be assured today, that whenever we look on a rainbow, God would be looking on it too. And that's something I think we miss sometimes. God says, I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. God looks at the rainbows. As we're looking up at a rainbow, appreciating it, God is looking down on it and remembering the covenant that he made with man. That's pretty cool. So next time you look at a rainbow, you're looking at the same thing God's looking at. Verse 18, let's well read through 29. We'll finish out the chapter here. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Now, these next few verses are the only slip-up that is recorded from Noah's life. It seems a momentary lack of judgment. 
possibly because he got comfortable and let his guard down, led to him drinking too much wine. And this wine caused him to become uncovered in his tent. And we aren't told exactly how this happened, but I would assume that the wine made him really hot. He took off his garment and was going to lay down for a nap. He threw off his cloak, laid down, and it ended up turning into a deeper sleep than he'd intended. So let's read verse 20 through 29. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, this is a bit of a strange account by any standards. So some context may be helpful for us. Enough time had to pass since they got off the ark for Noah to, one, plant a vineyard, two, for the grapes of that vineyard to come to maturity, right? Three, for the grapes to ferment into wine. And... There also must have been enough time to account for Noah's grandson, Canaan, Ham's son, to be born, and for Noah to see what kind of character Canaan was starting to exhibit. So I'm looking at around like a five to ten year gap between getting off the ark and the beginning of this episode maybe up to 20 years or so. But we're not stepping off the ark. Noah's drinking wine and passing out, right? There is some time that elapses here. So Noah's sons are starting to have kids themselves, and they've likely moved into their own dwellings. They've separated from their father, left him alone. The scripture is not clear if his wife is still alive. We're not sure there, but the sons have gone off and made their own family dwellings. And that probably explains why Noah wasn't expecting any guests in his tent that day. And after holding that family together through everything, I'm sure Noah was tired and he let his guard down. But he went too far and he compromised. It's the only time that we see Noah slip up in the Bible. And the reaction of each of Noah's sons to his sin tells a lot about their character. 
Ham finds his dad first. And it seems that Ham, though he did trust in God to deliver him through the flood, by faith, he stepped onto the ark. He must have had a heart of rebellion through it all. But that influence of his father kept him centered, kept him on the straight and narrow, as we say. He probably had some sort of bitterness towards his father for whatever reason, and was in a strange way relieved when he caught his father in sin. People do that, don't they? When they hear you're a Christian, they'll start acting strange around you, kind of trying to test you, see how you'll react to certain things. It's a funny thing. And when someone hears I'm a pastor, they certainly start treating me differently. You know, when I meet someone just out in the world, I don't lead with, hey, I'm Pastor Kaysen. How are you doing? (laughs) That just sets the relationship up for some awkwardness and failure. It is a weird thing that people do, but they try to catch you in something that you're not supposed to be doing. And it seems that that's exactly what Ham is doing. He's caught his righteous father in a weak moment. It says that he saw the nakedness of his father. And the word saw more accurately means that he gazed intently upon the nakedness of his father. Some think that there was some element of a homosexual attraction to Ham's gaze, but I honestly don't see that here. There are some reasons that people think that, but I think it was more of a simple satisfaction that he caught his dad in sin. And what does he do? And he told his two brothers outside. He wants to go let everybody know Dad's messed up, guys. And he's hoping that they'll share in his satisfaction. But they don't. They treat this situation very differently from him. His brothers did not share his satisfaction in Noah's sin, but they acted in grace. They sought to cover up their dad's sin, the embarrassment that it would cause. And that's the heart that God wants us to have towards the shortcomings of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't be praying on our own, but lifting up and supporting our fellow Christians. And yeah, sometimes we fall down. But the heart of a Christian should be one that that wants to help their brothers who have fallen should help other Christians not go around and gossiping about everybody else's sin. No, that's, that's not fitting. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And that's a heart of grace. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. 
Now, it's not clear how Noah came to know what Ham had done, but he may have just woken up with this garment on him that he knew he didn't put there, and he went to ask around to the family, and he finally pieced the puzzle together. He got word of what Ham had done and how his other two sons reacted. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. So Noah pronounces this curse on Canaan. Notice he does not pronounce the curse on Ham, who actually transgressed, but Ham's son, Canaan. In verse 18, we see that Ham was the father of Canaan, and it repeats that two other times. And this seems to be an erroneous addition until you read the rest of this account. And since Ham sinned, the curse fell on one of his sons, Canaan. There are respected commentators who argue that this curse was effective on all of Ham's lineage, including his other three sons, not just Canaan. And there are some who claim that this curse only affected the line of Canaan, who was one of four of Ham's sons. And I tend to stick with the more natural reading of the text, which seems to be that this curse was pronounced specifically on the line of Canaan. Canaan was Noah's grandson, and this curse was confined to Canaan's descendants. And the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, became perennial enemies of the Jewish people. Throughout the Old Testament, they are at odds with each other, the Jews and the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were the people that Joshua was ordered to drive out of the promised land. But this curse can really be viewed as more of a prophecy. You know, not, it's not that Noah was necessarily imposing his will on his sons, on his grandsons. It's more like he was predicting what they would become. Right? And it's just like when Jacob will prophesy concerning each of his 12 sons in Genesis 49. He tells the outcome of his sons and of their descendants. It's usually not hard for a parent to tell the character of their child or the direction in life that they're going to take. And even from a young age, you can kind of start to tell those things, the character that your son is developing. And Noah, no doubt guided by the Spirit of God, delivers this remarkable prophecy. There's more to it than what's on the surface. We'll get there. What about the Canaanites? You know, are they just doomed? Can they find grace in the eyes of God? Well, you've probably heard of one Canaanite who found grace, Rahab. We've probably mostly heard of Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile, a Canaanite, and a female prostitute who found grace in the eyes of God. 
her faith in God saved her when the armies of God were taking over the city. She even made it into the infamous Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. If a Canaanite is to come to repentance through faith, they certainly would find forgiveness. And Rahab is a prime example of that. Here is Rahab, a Canaanite, in the royal family, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She would marry into the tribe of Judah, and she's included in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1. So yeah, if, if a Canaanite comes to true repentance in faith, they're saved. So, you know, don't make more of this than what it is. And only those of us on this side of Christ can see the true depth of the prophecy contained here. Verse 19 says that the whole earth was populated by these three sons of Noah. And chapter 10 will expand on this and we'll be there next week. But let's take a look at this prophecy. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Notice that Noah says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, from Shem's lineage would come the people of Israel. Shem is where all of the Israelites were descended from. Verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth. May he dwell in the tents of Shem. And there's some wordplay going on here because Japheth actually means to enlarge. So he says, may God enlarge to enlarge. May God enlarge Japheth. And Japheth's descendants did overspread the earth more than his brother's descendants. And most of us here this morning are descendants of Japheth. His posterity spread north into Europe and into parts of Asia. They were enlarged. That is the largest group of people on the earth. And there's this strange phrase. May he, Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem. Now that doesn't make any sense until Acts 10. When God pours out his spirit to the Gentiles as a sign that they have found forgiveness and salvation in Christ, just as the Jews had. Paul later writes about this in Romans 11. He's writing to the Gentiles that we should not be boastful of our position with God because we are only a grafted branch. We are only grafted into this olive tree, this family of God. The Jews are a natural branch. The gospel was first extended to the Jews and then extended to the Gentiles. Surely the natural branch is holy if the grafted branch is holy. 
And in this picture, we find the fulfillment of Noah's prophecy. The Gentiles, the descendants of Japheth, find rest with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the descendants of Shem. And I'm so thankful that we find rest in Christ. We now dwell in the tents of Shem. What a beautiful picture is painted by Noah here. Now I have no doubt he had no idea what he was saying. But he was led by the Spirit to utter these words. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And we have no other details from Noah's life after this. This is it. Those 350 years that he lived after the flood are mostly a mystery. Now, this episode with the wine happened during that time period at some point. But other than that, we have nothing else. Now, from these numbers, we can figure a couple of things. Very interesting to me. I don't know. Y'all might not find it interesting. But Noah lived until Abraham was 58 years old. Noah lived until Abraham was 58 years old. So there was a very real possibility that Noah talked with Abraham. And if our chronology is correct, Shem actually outlives Abraham. Shem, the son of Noah, outlived Abraham. So even if Abraham didn't talk directly to Noah, he definitely talked to Shem. And Abraham was one of Shem's descendants. So as a patriarch of that family, I'm sure that he got the chance to to talk to Shem. Very interesting. So when we see these things recorded, you know, they really didn't have to pass through many mouths. And they had writing from the beginning. So these things are very sure. And, you know, I think that's interesting. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And this little piece of dialogue from Noah, this curse, is the only recorded dialogue that we have from him. We see other things about him, but this is the only time that Noah speaks in the scripture. And this incident with the wine is the only time that we see Noah falling short. You know, in 950 years, there's only one recorded shortcoming. That's a pretty good record. And that is this example, this episode of Noah slipping up is kind of comforting. You know, Noah means comfort, right? This is kind of comforting because it shows us that these characters that we study so diligently in the Bible, they're real people. And that's all they are. They're people. 
They fall short. No one lives up to God's holy standard. They fall short, but God works with them. God uses them to accomplish amazing things, far beyond what they were capable of, to be honest. God's standards never change, and his word never changes, but he works with people, just like me and you. And that's the beauty of grace, right? In some ways, a gospel of grace is more demanding than a gospel of works. Because I can fall down, but I can't stay there. I have no excuse. If I just ask for forgiveness, God welcomes me back into his arms. You can't fold and give up. You have to get back up. And it is demanding in that way. The grace of God that allows us to get back up. And Noah lived many, many years, probably a few hundred years after this mishap. And before that, he led his family with greatness. He was a, a man of faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. Now, next week in chapter 10, we find this table of nations. And we obviously regard it as an inerrant account because it's contained within Scripture. But even secular anthropologists and historians have considered Genesis 10 to be one of the most accurate tables of nations that we have today. So that's going to be an interesting study for us. We'll probably break into chapter 11 next week as well. Look at the Tower of Babel. But don't hold me to that. We'll see how far we get. Okay, let's close our study there. And we'll end in a word of prayer. Thank you.